0: so you're traveling to go make your sacrifice is what do you think that process looks like it's like a very messy chaotic process to make a sacrifice i don't know if any of you have ever tried to get an animal to do anything that they didn't want to do um <laughs> Yelon, um when we were in Haiti i was going to say i, I was going to say have a privilege i don't i'm editing that thought and i don't know what other word to put in, in place for it when we were 14 we went to the market into like the butcher area and I remember they had cows that were being led to the slaughter, granted, like I had people up on my body like you would not believe, and um, Lauren and I had blonde hair, and we were 14, people kept ripping out um, chunks of our hair and running away with them, because it was like a treasure. Um, and so we're in the market, our hair is being ripped out, There's, I'm there, I remember this one calf, he ju- I mean, it was a bull, he just lost it, right? And so there's all these men around him with whips and they are trying to get him to move in the right direction and this bull is just bucking and losing and these Haitian men just came and stood between us and the chaos to protect us and to make sure that they would be. And there's cactuses on there's a cacti on the other side of what was going on, pushing us towards that. And so it was great. Um, and so, um, but, that, but that bull knew a little bit about what his future held, right? And he was not cooperating in any way, shape or form. And so one of the things I think, when, um, you're going to want to pull out that picture of the tabernacle that we gave you in the homework last week if you have that. Um, but one of the things, when we look, when I look at this picture, I just kind of like giggled because it's like really clean and like pristine looking, and look at the courtyard it is like nicely swept and graded. Um, and although I think that they probably had a value for purification for keeping that clean, that place was a hot mess. Um, the... The act of giving a sacrifice is a very chaotic, crazy um, act, and so I think one of the things I was listening to Jen Wilkins um, talk about this chapter, and she made a good point, and she was saying, like you, you actually can't go far enough with your imagination to think about how grotesque this actually was, and so in some ways, what do animals do when they get nervous? Anyone? When they get excited or nervous? They go to the bathroom, right? Like, they lose their bowel control. They lose their bladder control. So think about now, like, the smells you have going into this. This is not a pretty um, beautiful process. This is, uh, like, a down and dirty, like, in here, like, making this happen process. There is chaos that is involved in it. Um, It's exhausting. These animals are involuntarily playing this part, and they're fighting that because they don't want to. And so I think if we think about that, then and one thing Jen Wilkins talked about is, like, the laundry. Like, think about that. So what was the priest wearing when he made sacrifices? A robe on the Day of Atonement. But otherwise, every day he was wearing white linen. Okay, so just think about that for a second. Like, I don't know if we made a new outfit every day. We're talking about in Haiti, they, like, use limes and, like, scrub everything, and their whites are whiter than our whites are, so they got down systems. So maybe the Israelites had a secret laundry. Um you know, success that they used to get the blood out. But they were wearing white linen as they made these sacrifices. And so that alone, if you just think about the work and the tediousness, and it's like day after day after day. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit more about what that looked like on the Day of uh, Atonement um, and how um, the blood would just be overwhelming. And so when, as we look at today talking about Hebrews 9 in a better sanctuary, I'm going to open us in prayer but I just really want you guys to be thinking about what all went into this and what the realities of this were for the people and what, how they're making their sacrifices. So I'm going to open us in prayer, and then we're going to dig in. Dearly Father, I thank you so much that you love us, that um, you've stepped into this chaotic system that was so um, exhausting and took so much energy and time and perfection and law, and you stepped in and you offered yourself, Lord. I pray that we would not take that lightly. I pray that today that that truth would just encompass our hearts and change us for the beautiful sacrifice that you have made that have given us access to you. And so, Lord, I'm giving away the secret of what it is, Lord, but we just thank you so much for the access that we have for you and for the veil that was torn and that you have given us a better sanctuary, a better tabernacle, a better place to worship and to know you, Lord. And so we praise you for that, and we pray that you would just make that reality. Um so beautiful to us today. Pray this in your precious name. Amen. So before we go on with that, I just need to share a life update. This is Paxton. So at the beginning, I told you guys, you know, when I was introducing myself, that my dream would be to have a mini golden doodle. Um, dreams come true. Um, but he is actually the most peaceful, sweet dog I've met yet. And so he does like to chew on my elbow. Um, but that's his only, like, step down from sainthood so far. Um, he is very, he's 10 weeks old. We got him actually last Tuesday, and so I think he was here last Wednesday. Some of you saw him, but it's just a fun little thing to see. We actually had expected this to happen like in a year um, in terms of how we were saving and what was happening. The Lord just opened doors and orchestrated everything, and it's just been like really exciting. So that's Paxton, and he is really cute. That has nothing to do with what we're talking about today, but I needed to share it. It's a, gold, a mini golden doodle, so he'll be like 20 pounds. And he's hypoallergenic. Yes, he is inside the pumpkin. He, he was, it, that was like he was covered in pumpkin guts when he came out. But it was worth it. Um, <laughs> no, he is, he, is, he is brown. He's cute. Um, so talking about a better sanctuary, there should be some blank note pages in your um, notebook for this week. Just take notes as, as we go along. And like I said, you will want to have that tabernacle picture alongside with you as we talk. So when we talk about a better tabernacle or a better sanctuary, what we're talking about is a better place to worship. It's a better way to worship. It's a better opportunity for us to worship. We're going to start by, if you want to follow along in Hebrews 9, reading through the first 10 verses and just giving us an introduction of what's going on. So again, I'm going to read from my literal Greek translation. You guys can follow along in yours. Verse 1. Now, admittedly, even the first covenant had regulations governing worship, and its sanctuary was an earthly one. To elaborate, a tent, an outer one, was erected, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread, which tent is called the holy place. And behind the second curtain was a second tent, which is called the holy of holies, containing the golden altar of incense, the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which were a golden jar filled with manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tablets of the covenant. And above it was the cherubim of glory overshadowing the throne of mercy. Concerning these things, we cannot now speak in detail. Now, when these things have been arranged in the aforementioned manner, the priests continually entered the outer tent to perform their ritual duties. But into the second tent, once each year goes the high priest alone, not without blood, in order to offer it for his own sake and for the people's unintentional sins. The Holy Spirit was thus clearly showing this very thing. The way into the Holy of Holies, God's presence, had not yet been opened as long as the outer tent was still standing. Since it was an illustration of the situation then present, appropriate to a mere illustration, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot perfect the worshipper. In providing him with a clear conscience. They concern only food and drink and various ceremonial washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time, literally there it means the setting, the time of setting things right of the Reformation. So verses 1 through 10 begin to set up what it is to look at this better sanctuary and what we're talking about when we're looking at the tabernacle. Verse 5 says, so we're actually not going to spend that much time on it now because he's speaking to a Jewish audience. And so... Not many of us have also been in the tabernacle. Not many of us have brought an animal to sacrifice. And so I am going to spend a little bit more time today talking about what this meant and the symbolism that's in there because I think it's important for us to be able to know and capture when he says, okay, we're not going to talk about this now. Well, the Jewish mind was able to make all these connections. Susan made some of them for us last week, and we're just going to dive deep into that a little bit more. So, Lauren, you can go to the next slide. Oh, we're. We'll come back to that one. So this is the Day of Atonement. I just found it thoroughly entertaining that on Yom Kippur, there's all these like, um, you know, those like e-cards that are like kind of sarcastic and funny. There's so many of them to do with the Jewish holidays. This is one of them. It said Yom Kippur is the holiday where Jewish guilt is formally imposed. And so that's their current celebration of the Day of Atonement and how they celebrate it now. Um, I was watching a whole bunch of videos on how um, the Jewish culture now celebrates those, and we're going to get into that more in a little bit. Go ahead and go to the next slide. All right, so here's our bird's-eye view of the tabernacle. Um, so based on your homework, you guys should have some answers for me. What items were in the Ark of the Covenant? Yep, I hear Aaron's rod talk. Shut out, yep, the manna. And the Ten Commandments, absolutely. And who could go into the holy place? How often? What did he bring with him? And where could the women go? Yep, into the outer court, which I think is actually quite a big deal as we continue to think about that, what that means for us sitting in this room and how we get to have a better sanctuary and a better tabernacle. Um, So the book of Hebrews, in chapter 9, blood is mentioned 12 times. Just to give you a little bit of context, um, blood is mentioned 23 times in the book of Hebrews in total. And there is only one more book in the Bible that comes even, or in the New Testament, that comes remotely close to talking about blood as much, and that's the book of, anyone have an idea? Oh, sorry, New Testament. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, Leviticus would have been a really good Old Testament guess. (laughs) A (laughs) good guess, right? Revelation. So, Revelation, blood is talked about 21 times. Hebrews, 23 times, but in chapter 9 alone, we have 12 times. And so, I need you to understand how much the author in this chapter wants you to get this. Um, this, is, this is kind of the primer on what we're talking about and why we're talking about Jesus' blood and what this relates back to. He's very con- he or she is very concerned um, that we understand what is happening and what has happened. So let's talk just a little bit about a tabernacle. A tabernacle is literally the tent of meeting. God designed it, and he commanded it to be built. He wanted to show the Israelites that he dwelled among his people. And so God, which I just love this about him, he is a God of visual representations of spiritual realities, right? And so time and time again, particularly to the Israelites, he gives them visual, tangible representations of something that they can just really begin to see and taste and experience of who he is. Uh, The tabernacle was a place of fellowship between man and man but also between man and God and it was a place that God could communicate back to his people. Um, We look at the directions and the instructions for the tabernacle in Exodus chapters 25 through 40 all through in there. Our best guess is that it was first erected in 1440 BC so I want you to think about how long that continued. Um, So for about 400 years it was actively used until what? Anyone know? Well, when, until Solomon built the ta- the, um, the temple, and then that was destroyed later, and then that's when they flipped a lot of their systems in the current Jewish practice to be able to continue. So, um, so here we have. You can see the entrance over there. We're going to go through this whole thing in a second. Go ahead, and Lauren, and flip through the next couple pages um, pictures. I just want you. yes so that's the one you have in your notes. Go to the next one. I love this one because that shows um, how the presence of God rested on in a visual way on that mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. And I think there's one more picture. And then that just kind of shows like a side view of looking into that gold jar full of the manna, Aaron's rod budding, and the Ten Commandments. And so I wanted to make sure I gave you guys lots of visuals for this because I think that's a very intentional part of what God is trying to communicate to his people through the, both this experience and through what this looks like. So go ahead, Lauren, and go back to that first kind of bird's eye view picture. Thank you. So why is the tabernacle important? Um, We're going to walk through the tabernacle real quick, and then we're going to go through why it's important. I would love anyone is welcome to kind of chime in on different um, symbolisms of the different things. So when you first entered or when you first came up to the tabernacle, what did you see? It's part of your homework, too, imagining approaching it, but you can kind of just use your imaginations. What would you see? What's that? Curtains, Curtains, yes. Curtains. And so the gate, so you would kind of also see, you'd see like a fencing-ish kind of thing, and you'd see a gate. And so why do you think they erected the fence around it? This is just kind of like if you erect a fence around something now, you don't want people to go there, right? You don't want people to, and so because it was such a holy place, because it was such a sacred process of what was going on. It needed to be protected from the common man or the common animal or, like, the stray dog, like, just running into the Holy of Holies, you know? And so that they were trying to create a barrier that would make them feel how serious and how beautiful a place that it was. And so that was the court fence, and you would see the gate of the court. And so the, as you go into the entrance, right there, you can kind of see it. Um, that was... Um, You'd enter into the gate of the court to offer offer your sacrifice for sin or for Thanksgiving. You would see hanging curtains that were probably most likely like a blue, purple, scarlet. You would see four pillars of brass. You would see sockets of bronze and brass that those were put into and hooks and clasps on the top that would make the curtains close. And so you had to enter into his court with praise, right? Like if anyone's heard that in a song, right? And enter into the court with Thanksgiving. And you had to begin to enter into that through that gate. How many gates were there? One. One gate. So that's important. I want you guys, if, if, you ta- if you're taking notes, I want you just to be thinking like, oh look, symbolism, oh look, metaphor, oh look, it's a type, <laughs> right, all over. Um, so after passing through the gate, the person would come into the court. The court fence was made of a long piece of linen held up by posts surrounding the tabernacle. <laughs> Only priests from the tribe of Levi were allowed to touch the tabernacle, so the fence, again, protected people from coming too close accidentally. What is the next thing that they would see? If you're walking in here, what's that next thing you see right there? The altar altar of burnt offering. And so, yes, you have those tables on the side in your diagram, which are for preparing um, the sacrifices. And then we have the bronze altar. So God wanted to dwell among his people, and how does God dwell among sinful people? So he required people to offer the sacrifice. And so then we have the bronze altar, and that is actually where they offered the sacrifice for sins, right there. Then you have the wash bin, or the bronze laver, that comes after that. And just talk a little bit about the offerings. Who knows what they would offer on the altar? Did it always have to be like a lamb? What else? Mm-hmm. Yep. So a burnt offering would be like bulls, sheep, goats, doves, pigeons. Grain offerings would be like their little like cute grain cakes or wafers of fine flour. A peace offering would be a goat or a lamb. A sin offering would be a bull or a lamb. And trespasses um, would be maybe even offering like a pigeon or a baby goat or a grain or a lamb. And so there's all kinds of different offerings that had different symbolism. And so you also had to... <laughs> When I think about, like, all you had to kind of have on hand for, like, giving your sin, that kind of overwhelms me, too. Like, I don't know if there was an opportunity to go to the grocery store and get, like, the perfect, like, dove if you needed to go offer that. Or, like, you trespassed against someone, you needed to go offer a lamb. But if you think about it, just kind of all you had to have on hand and be raising always kind of behind the scenes in case you needed it to like offer for your sins, that alone is stressful. I don't know if any of you sometimes have like a little anxiety about like, what do I keep in my pantry? What do I need to keep on hand? Like, should I stockpile? Should I just buy it when I need it? I think that that's a very entertaining thought to think about how that would go to like this. Like, okay, I think I might sin this many times, so I think I need to raise this many pigeons um, and whatever that may look like. Yeah, no, anyone, yeah, yeah, but, I mean, it's, it is a work, right, um, so then we go to the wash basin, and so the rest of the steps were performed by the priests on behalf of the people, so from then on out, now the priests enter in, right, because the people couldn't make the sacrifices on their own, and they couldn't do it, and so that's a big thing, too, that we've talked about a little bit, and we'll continue to talk about also, um, so the washing purified the priest and prepared him to enter into the tabernacle. The Lord said the priest must wash so that he would not die. And so um, to our best understanding, that labor right there was made out of bronze mirrors so that you, it had a mirrored surface so you could see if you were still um, dirty or covered in blood somewhere. And it, but in some way it was a reflective surface. So you're able to be like, oh, I better not go in there with that on my elbow. Entering into the tabernacle, and so the priest entered into the tabernacle through the curtains, again, one entrance to continue to go forward, and the tabernacle was divided into how many sections? Two, the holy place and the holy of holies, which were made of goat's hair covering the linen, covering beneath, ram skin that had been um, dried and dyed red, badger, or, okay, it literally says sea cow, and I forgot to Google what that was. I don't know. Sea cow. We'll Google that later. Uh, a manatee is what I was thinking, but uh, I don't know how many, like, then I was like, wait, Israelites were catching like manatees? Like, Whoa, my mind just exploded. Um, did they ever see a Noah wall? I don't know. So they had 48 boards and um, continued, and there's just a lot of details that go into what that looked like and what that covering over the tabernacle was. And that was the Tent of Meeting, and so that was the very place where... The priests were able to meet with God and where God was able to meet with the people. And so every day they entered into the holy place to serve the Lord, to make sure that the bread was being switched out, to make sure that the lampstand was not going out, and um, to really just see over all of that. So we go to the lampstand. You can see it in that, oh, like it's shining and everything. The menorah is what it's called on there. And the lampstand provided light in the otherwise. Think about that. What would be the problem? really dark. i just also like to encourage you to think about the smell. So if it's like really hot and it's like covered in like sea cow skin, i again have not smelled sea cow skin, but think about just like how dark and like hot and like humid it would be inside of there. And so the light, um, the lampstand provided the light in an otherwise dark room. The priest trimmed the wicks to keep it burning brightly continually, and the lampstand um, was made from one single forged piece of gold. It was not pieced together. It had a central shaft with six branches, three on each side, making it a seven-branched lampstand. Each branch had knobs, flowers, and an almond-shaped bowl at the top to hold the olive oil that they would burn. Then we go to the table of the showbread. You can see that's on the other side there. (coughs) The table of the showbread, the priest placed 12 loaves of bread. Why were there 12? For the 12 tribes of Israel. The loaves were a continual reminder of the everlasting promise between God and the children of Israel and the memorial of God's provision of food. The bread was eaten by Aaron and his sons and the the priests and was replaced every week on the Sabbath. That also made me giggle before it was like Saturday. It was crunchy croutons. Um, And the table of showbread was made of acacia wood. It was overlaid with gold and um, and had a crown of frame of gold around it. Gold poles were put through it so that people could carry it. Then we go to the altar of incense. The high priest burned incense on the altar of incense every morning and every evening. The four corners of the altar had a horn and a crown crown molding around the top. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, the horns of the altar were sprinkled with the blood of of, of the sin offering. The Lord required that special incense be burned constantly on the altar of incense. It was a sweet, special incense, a mixture of spices to be used, only for the tabernacle. So this wasn't something you could take home as a souvenir. It was only for the tabernacle use. Not, no other of it was to be burned on any other altar. The incense was a matter of life and death, as Leviticus 10, 1 and 2 clearly show us, that when Aaron's sons offered a strange fire before the Lord, they were immediately struck dead. Again, that was also made from acacia wood covered with gold. And so as we go through there, what is the next thing that you would see? the veil. The veil was a divider between the holy place and the most holy of holies. It was a barrier between God and man, and only the high priest would enter into the most holy place. And we know that he would wear his robe, and what would be on the bottom, sewn onto the bottom of his robe? Bells. Bells. So that the other people outside, and what would he have around his waist? A rope. rope. So that people outside would be able to be like, wait, is he still moving in there? Oh, the bells stopped. Or boom, they fell down, so then they could pull him back out if he had died because he had not been clean before the presence of God. Um, and so the veil was more than likely um, blue, purple, and scarlet threads and designed with cherubim embroidered on them and they were hung on four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold and then completed hung with gold hooks. And so we know that that veil, what happened when Jesus rose from the dead, I remember being little and totally not getting what was going on whatsoever, and I was like, that's an interesting detail to put into the story of the resurrection. Duly noted. Um, And I had no idea what the depth of the concept of what that was, and we'll go into that more in a little bit. And so, yes, and we get into the Ark of the Covenant. We've talked about what's inside of it, but let's talk about the mercy seat for a second. So the mercy seat was symbolic of God's divine throne and presence. With the sprinkling of blood on the mercy seat, the judgment of God transformed into grace and mercy. And so we're going to talk a little bit more and more about what that looks like. So when we look at this, and when we have to have an explanation of the earthly tabernacle, because this is not our practice, this is not our minds, this is not what we know to be able to be true. And obviously the author of Hebrews is trying to make a point to this, and he's saying this isn't the point, right? We're going to talk about something really better, which we're going to talk about in a second too. But at the same time, he's saying, but this is important because there is so much here that you need to know to know what rich truths are coming next. Um, so go ahead, Lauren, and go to that first slide with the words on it after the pictures. So why is tabernacle important today? It's a couple of reasons I want you guys to be considering. Today, we're going to talk about the transformation that happened from this being God's dwelling place on the, the mercy seat to the fact that now we are actually God's dwelling place. Where was God's presence in the tabernacle? Again, on that mercy seat. And where is his presence now? Yes, it is among us, and he lives inside of us. As believers now, um, do we have to go and find a Levite to be able to offer our sin offering and to be able to make us have peace and be able to help us out? No, not only do we not need that priest to do that on our behalf, but actually now First Peter tells us that we are part of the priesthood to be bringing peace and to be bringing hope and to be bringing all of those elements to the people around us. And the tabernacle shows a pattern of worship that is designed by God, as we see in Hebrews 9 and 10. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more. So go ahead and go to the next slide, Lauren. Oh, sorry, go back. (laughs) I'll let you guys finish writing that down. All right, I'm going to the next one. Just kidding. There's lots of people still (laughs) ready. So we're going to talk about the flow of worship. And so when I first studied this, I think it was probably about 10 years ago, and I loved it because I had, again, in my non-Jewish mind, had never drawn the connections between how the Lord set up the tabernacle and how he has a call on our hearts in the way we worship him. And so everything, again, we're talking about today has to do with a better sanctuary, a better opportunity that we have to come to worship Jesus. But I want to look at how the flow of worship happened in the tabernacle and how that affects our lives. So go ahead and go to the next one, Lauren. And so, it's a little smaller than I wanted to. Oh, here, it's bigger. So what I want you to be thinking about, and this is something I would love for everyone to write down, um, is there is definitely a way that we approach God in the tabernacle. He made lots of laws. He made lots of rules. People had to work so hard for it. And there's an interesting opportunity. So how did you first start? What's the first step? I think you just knocked him. You're attacking me with the microphone, Connie. (laughs) How did you first start? How did you approach? It's a bit of an overreaction. That's okay. I was like, what else is happening? Am I dying? Um, You entered, right? So one gate. Okay. And so this is where the place if you think about it, that's where our personal worship starts. You don't get to worship Jesus until what? Yeah, you you know him, right? Like you have believed, you have trusted in him and you have invited him to be your savior. And so that's where our worship begins. Anything that we do, any songs that we sing, any Bible verses that we read, any, you know, confession that we have up to that point. Um, it is actually happens within the framework of that relationship with Jesus where that actually begins to have meaning and it actually begins to do something in our hearts. And so there is one way to get to heaven and there is one way to be able to know Jesus and that is to have a personal relationship with him. The second step is that in our worship is after we know him and he's allowed us to be in relationship with him and enter into that, we have confession, right? And so they would offer that sacrifice That's what they would be able to do is be able to say, like, that's a confession. So if you think about it, like... (laughs) I don't know why you had to offer a sacrifice when you had your period. Like, that's kind of unfair, but I didn't make the system. So but like, so if you're making that sacrifice, right, that's your like confession of what's been going on, right? But it's also like if you're having like a peace offering, that's also your confession of what's been going on. There has not been peace between me and this person. And so that's my confession of the sacrifice. If I'm offering a burnt offering for sins, that's part of my confession. People can see what you're offering, right? I kind of love that and kind of like I'm like, whoa, all at the same time. To be able to be like, oh, she's offering a pigeon or, you know, being able to see and know what's going on in that community. But it's also an absolutely beautiful vulnerability to be able to see the confession of the community around you to be able to be going to the throne of God. And I just love that. Um, As a counselor and as myself, I just, I love confession and I love vulnerability. I love when people live in community with each other and everything's on the table and we can deal with it and we can know what it is and it can still be ugly and it can still be full of sin, but we can love each other through it and we can kind of know that. And that's something in that flow of worship that I just just eat up. And so that second part is just being able to come before the Lord and being able to be like, okay, here's who I am. Here's what I'm struggling with. Here's what's going on. And here's what's going on in my heart. And so what does that lead to? Sins that they know committed because I was really having a hard time with he 9-7 that says that he was um, asking for forgiveness for their sins in ignorance. So, right. So so, like so that's their sins. unintentional sins and that's what the Day of Atonement was for. That sacrifice was for, okay, Say so, hey, we've been offering sins every day all day long for the things we know we did but then there is that one day that was set aside to be able to be like but the things that we don't know that we did, we got to make sure that we like cover those too because we could still be in trouble, right? Um, for breaking the law even if we did it on accident or unintentionally or it was in ignorance and so that's the difference that's a day of atonement and then this is like your daily um, offering for what you know that you did so after that right so you confess and that leads to what that leads to the cleansing and to the forgiveness and so I think we're going to talk about a clean conscience in a little bit but I think that's one of the things that I just long for people to be able to understand Is it's like, yes, you know Jesus, you have a relationship with him, you confess, and what does he offer us every single solitary time? Forgiveness and cleansing. Does he say no? (laughs) Like, I was thinking about this. Like, so many, we live our lives so many times, like, we're like, so I'm just going to take all these, like, bull ashes with me and carry them around with me all day so I can know how awful my sin was, right? Like, that's that's essentially what we do with shame, right, and guilt when we continue to carry it on after we've confessed it, is we wear it and we continue and we rub ourselves on it and we kind of mark ourselves with it. Um, because it's heavy and we don't know how we can be cleansed and we don't know how our conscience can be cleansed. And so he tells us very clearly in these first couple verses that the Israelites did this all the time, but it just was for that day. It didn't clean their conscience. It didn't. It didn't offer them anything beyond that day. And we have a place where we are able to worship Jesus and we're able to confess, we're able to have cleansing and forgiveness that eradicates it out and makes us clean. And that led to what? Worship. And I just think that is a beautiful, beautiful picture. So when you come and you confess your sins, and then you know and you understand the forgiveness that you've had, what does that elicit inside of you? Worship. And what kind of, and in the red there, I wrote out the elements of what the worship is. Right? So we have the enlightening or the encouragement that that light of truth and the fact that Jesus says that he is the light, and we know that God's word is the light, that that, leads to a, that, that, that gives to us. Secondly, we have the feeding. He says that he is our bread, right? And so Jesus, when he's saying these things, he's not like willy-nilly like, I am your brick. I am your, you know, vent. He's actually very clearly relating back to these elements that they know are part of this worship system to be able to say, all those things were great, but I fulfill them. And so when we enter into worship, I think a lot of times, especially growing up, I love worship. And I, I think, I can remember one time we had a... Um, not think of what it's called Lauren and mom like when we had to go and have concert of prayer that's what they called it back in the day and we had to go in and I think Lauren and I had the same attitude we were we were young and they're like we're gonna go pray for an hour and Lauren and I were like what (laughs) (laughs) three hours okay yes I was I wanted to say three hours but I didn't want to so yes three hours and I remember being like um I I'm sick um I don't know what's going on and I had no, I literally had a no concept of what we'd be doing. I was like totally terrified and I was like, I'm going to be bored out of my mind. (laughs) And that one concert of prayer was one of the most beautiful experiences of my life and I came to crave that. Why? Because someone led us in worship, right, and led us in prayer and led us through a lot of those steps to be able to say like, hey, this is what it's like to sit before the throne of God and to hear his word. To, to have an opportunity to confess, to receive forgiveness, and then worship out of that, to be fed. There was no preaching, but there was singing. There was different ways of praying. And I remember the time went by like so fast. So fast. Um, and I think that, when we look at what that worship is, when we look at that worship that comes out of our heart to be able to see that it is an aspect of being enlightened, of being encouraged, of being fed by that bread and that altar of incense, that was that intercession. That was that place where then the priest would come and that's our opportunity in our worship to be able to say, all right, Lord, and this is what's going on and this is where I want to see you show up and I want to see you work. So show me how you're working. Show me how you're working in this person's life in that ucky situation, in that illness, and whatever it may be. And what did that lead to then? leads to an encounter of God, right? To be able to say that, like, now that veil is torn, we don't have to stay on the other side of that veil. We are not trapped. We have the opportunity to be able to approach his presence and to be able to have him show up in our lives and to be able to say, all right, so here I am. The mercy seat, right, has now been transformed into a throne of grace where we can receive that grace from him and we can be given that. And so this is just a, per- like, so this is also a huge encouragement for you. If Sometimes you are like, I, I, I don't know what words to use. Like my worship, it's, it's not exciting, right? Like my personal worship at home or when I'm at church on Sundays or when I'm here in women's Bible study, like there is just, there is a, there's like a blanket over my heart. There's like a blah over my heart or whatever it may be. I think this flow of worship is one of the most beautiful things to be able to study, to be able to say, okay, Lord, I don't know what's going on between you and I but I'm going to make an intentional pathway to you and the things that I know that you've provided to show me like who you are and where you are to pursue you to draw near. So one of the biggest things I want you to think away is so what so so takeaway is when the high priest came into the holy of holies on the day of atonement and when he came out he was like I got to get out of this place, right? Like I think at that point you're like, "And okay, I I, I think hopefully it was like a beautiful experience when he's in there." But I just feel like if I was him, I'd be like, so now I'm going to leave. I'm still alive. This is going well. My bells are still ringing, right? And they'd be like, "Woo, we made it. Um, And maybe that's just totally me putting my insecurities onto it or something. But I just feel like there'd be like a little bit of celebration, like, all right, that's done. Um, And so it's a sense of like getting out, right? They had to stay out. They couldn't go in. And then they wanted to get out as fast as, poss- as fast as possible. But what is the opposite of that in terms of what God now calls us to? He says, draw near. And so I think for us, I think a lot of times, too, when we're in worship or when we're in these moments, we still have a like concept of, like, check the box, got to get out of there. And so I think for you, if you're in any kind of dull or stuck place, for you to be able to be thinking, what? It- draw near. Pursue that to be able to say, okay, Lord, I'm going to trust in you. I want to confess my sins. Is there something that's standing between me having an encounter and worshiping you? Because, look, where do the sins in this confession stand between? It stands between that, right? So I don't know if any of you, I have many times, it's like, okay, Lord, why, you and I were just like, I don't feel like I'm seeing you show up like I don't know it's just like a blanket of like blah over my heart and my soul and so many times it is my own sins that stand between that I'm holding on to that I think I'm justified in like if I'm in, I'm an Enneagram one right so I'm right so I'm trying to figure out like why? what I don't know what possibly could be standing between me oh okay it's your own pride there it is standing between you and the Lord um, and confessing that and seeking forgiveness for that. And so I think for you, just really contemplating that and having an opportunity, and in the adult, maybe you're not there now, but be able to return to that and be able to say, okay, this is where I need to continue to pursue and draw near. Yeah. Yeah. Would you still say, though, that, I mean, there's times where you're like, that worship was, woo! And then there's other times where you're like,
1: and you, but sometimes when you read the Word of God, it's the same way, you know? Oh, absolutely.
0: And I don't, the Lord never is like, every time you worship me, it's gonna be like, woo, yeah. right? Like, that's no, literally nowhere in there anywhere. And so I think that that is an element and that is an aspect. And those are the opportunities that He gives us and our feelings to be able to, like, understand that. But I think a lot of worship is just being able to say, like, okay, I have no woo going through my heart, but I am going to continue to pursue you and do that anyways. And that truth, I still get to see you show up. I still get to see your truth come to life and, like, burn a hole in my, like, sin and eradicate it or whatever may that that may look like but I think you're right to be able to say so it's not always going to be like woo, and then a counterpart but it is always going to be able to be like but I see you right and we know that God loves to meet us and like the valleys right like he loves to meet us down there and show up and a lot of times it's not giving us like an adrenaline high but it's giving us like that anchor that we talked about earlier in the book of Hebrews and it's giving us like the forging of our character to be able to see him in those moments well it doesn't culture affect I mean if I'm always living for those highs hmm. yep. it's, not it's like temporary gratification so not a idea, so yeah you're going right then it's like Jesus is your drug right? So we don't want to have Jesus be our drug. We want to ha- let him be him and work however he works and have us submit and like accept that. Um, be like our coffee. Yes. But I think of like, Psalm 139 when we, when we like, look at that psalm and see how intricately God knows everything about, us, more than we know about right? mm-hmm. So there's times that you go into that confession place and you, and you go there and you try to like mhm- those sins that we don't know. So just mm-hmm. the heart of asking God to search you, like mm-hmm. ends, like Lord, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't And I don't know if anyone else has ever had this experience, but there's been times when I pray that for years, I've been like, I don't know, I don't know, right? And then it'll be like two years later, and I've asked a hundred million times, but he hasn't seen it fit in the timing of my life, in like the, my sanctification process to reveal that to me, to be able to be like, it's that. they will be like, okay, that would have been great if you would tell told me two years ago, but that wasn't his, his want and his will for me. It was to use that to like refine me and to shape me in different ways. And I think that that is very true. So if we look at verses 11 and 12, it says... But when Christ appeared as high priest of good things that have already come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, nor by virtue of the blood of goats and bulls, but by virtue of his own blood. He entered once and for all into the Holy of Holies, thus personally securing eternal redemption. The word redemption there is actually has the root of the concept of rescue. Thus securing eternal rescue, rescue from our guilt, rescue from our alienation from God being kept on the other side of that veil. Rescue from a wasted life where we couldn't have him involved in our day-to-day basis and we could only check in with him when, every now and then. Rescue from the dominion of sin in our daily lives, and rescue from the penalty of sin. There we begin to see the Old Testament sacrifices, and how he fulfills them, and how he is the replacement of them. Go ahead and go to the next slide, Lauren. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. The next slide shows us, when we get there, the elements of the divine worship. Here we go. And how Jesus replaced them. The door. Jesus is the only entrance. The lampstand. He is our daily light, and he... Exposes the deeds of our heart and of the wicked (coughs) the bread. He is our sustenance. He is our daily feeding He is our provision for us The altar of incense He is our mediator He is our intercessor Daily we can come to him The washing it's by his blood that we have been made pure by his blood that we've been made pure offering us clean hands and a pure heart The veil is torn, just as the flesh of Jesus was and granted us access to God. And again, the mercy seat has now been made a throne of grace. If you did not get all that down, you can feel free to take a picture of it, and I can send this out with the notes, too. You can go ahead and go to the next one. The earthly tabernacle pointed to Jesus, but it couldn't do the work. Again, this is a metaphor. This is a type. This is a showing us that, that something better is coming. It had limited worship because of the veil and all of those regulations that we've talked about. But now we have full access and freedom. I mean, think about that. I feel like in the Jewish mind, you literally, I, just, I, just, I don't know if you could comprehend that. Like, if you were in that day, day and you saw the veil being torn and you came into relationship with Jesus, to be able to say, like, actually, I don't have to work for this, Actually, I don't have to keep a record of what I'm doing and then make sure I have a backup pigeon in my yard to do that. Like, complete freedom and full access. The old sacrificial system was only for our sins. It couldn't cover those unintentional ones. But now we have a continual and all-encompassing sacrifice for our sins. The old system was temporary and continual. Again, now we are eternal and it is completed the old one was the old tabernacle was in a fixed place if you lived 3 days away you had to come 3 days away and now the presence of the lord is always with us i think that there's a beautiful parallel that i'll send you to for go ahead to the next slide lord between the Old Testament sacrifices and what communion is. And so when we talked about the Old Testament sacrifices and the blood of all these bulls and goats being poured out, here's um, a gross fact for you. So it's like, it's this not like recorded biblical fact, so it's like legend, but it's still a good one. That on the Day of Atonement, the blood that was in the court would be up to the priest's knees. Because it was just bull after goat after bull after goat, and he would be just completely covered in blood that it would rise to such a level that would be held in by those white linen curtains on the outside, remember? And that he would just be covered, and it would be up to his knees in blood. And so that Old Testament sacrificial system was external, and now we see the fact that actually Jesus' blood was poured out for us. And Matthew 26 talks about how that's how we celebrate communion, is that we're able to say, okay, this is actually our sacrifice that was once and for all, and we're going to cherish that, and we're going to remember that. So the sacrifices were external. Communion is internal. The Old Testament sacrifices offered a metaphorical cleansing, and communion offers a tr- or communion. doesn't offer it, but celebrating Jesus' blood is representing a true cleansing. It was temporary. This is eternal, continual, once and for all. you had got to work for it, and this is given to us. And so, yes, communion is still a metaphor of what we're seeing have happened, but it's something that was done for us, and Jesus' blood, was so precious that he thought that our blood was so precious that he gave his own son, right? That God gave his own son for his blood to be able to cover us. Um, I could go on and on about how that relates to cutting, but we won't. So, one other thing I wanted to look at is we look at, so verse 13, um, through the end. I'm not going to read through all of that, but I'll let you guys, hopefully you've read through it this week. I'm going to pick apart on a couple different things. In, I love this appearing concept. So in verse 24, it says, For Christ did not enter into a man-made sanctuary, a mere model of the real one, but into heaven itself, now to appear openly, which literally there means before the face in the actual presence of God for us. Verse 26 says, Otherwise it would have been necessary for him to suffer repeatedly since the world began. But as the case actually is, he appeared once at the climax of history to cancel sin by sacrificing himself. Verse 28 says, So also Christ, having once been offered to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time without sin. Not to deal with sin, but to bring full salvation to those who are eagerly waiting for him. So we have a whole bunch of different verb switching up going on in this, these, this last kind of conclusion part. Verse 24 uses is appearing. And I love that because he's showing us here that like actually his appearance is going to like hone us in on all sides. So currently, presently, he is appearing for us in verse 24. This has to do with our sanctification, that he is currently before God on our behalf. 26 says he <laughs> has appeared. And that's the past tense, that he did and has appeared. And that is relating back to our justification, right? Like that one point in time. So sanctification, we define it as the process of God making us more like Jesus and that Jesus is involved in that on our behalf. Has justification, that's a one-time thing when we entered that gate, when we accepted Jesus as our Savior, we were made right before God. And that perfected our consciousness, our conscience. And then also, then we have a future appearance that he will appear in verse 28. And that's going to be our glorification, right? When at the end that we are made with Jesus, he then perfects our flesh, not just our conscience, but also now our flesh, and he delivers us from sin into the presence of God. And so I think it's so fun to be able to watch that appear word show up again and again in the conclusion of chapter 9 as he's saying, you know what? So Jesus, who it's really all about, all of these things in the tabernacle were really all about him they're trying to prepare our hearts, trying to prepare our experience of life to be able to say, okay, wow, I want a savior who fulfills all this so I don't have to do these sacrifices anymore. And what a beautiful switch that is. But there's one verse that I just want to hone in to finish up on here. And that is verse 14. I'll start in verse 13. It says, "For if the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of the heifer sprinkled on those who were ceremonially defiled cleanses." So far as our physical purity is concerned, how much more effectively will the blood of Christ cleanse our conscience from dead works? Here's a great part. So as to serve the living God, inasmuch as by virtue of his eternal spirit he offered himself unblemished to God. And so verse 14 here is talking about a it's a moral cleansing. Go to the next slide. It is taking away something from us. It is negatively, it's subtracting and relieving our conscience from its sense of guilt. And then it is also positively giving us something. And he's giving our conscience a sense of peace and forgiveness. Uh, conscience outside of Christ. Many of you know this from before you, know, you knew Jesus. Maybe some of you in here don't know Jesus and you still understand what this is like on a daily basis. Or you watch it in your neighbors, you watch it in your family members, you watch it in your husbands, maybe who don't know Jesus, or your children, and you see that conscience outside of Christ, it has to hold the failures in it because it has to try to fix them. When you don't have a Savior who can relieve your failures and cleanse you from your sin, you like, innately as humans, we try to fix it on our own. Okay, so this is where we see what come into play: drugs, alcohol. Sexual addictions, these are all great worldly opportunities that the forces of evil love to try to give to people to cleanse their conscience, right? To numb out, to not be able to feel, and to be able to fix them. So our conscience outside of Christ, it has to hold our failures and has to make its own attempts (laughs) to fix them. You see people who try to ignore them. You see people who wallow in them. One way or the other, we see them and we try to deal with it. Some people put them under, like, the rug to, like, grow and fester and become bigger. Some people try to hide them in a closet. Some people, like, declare them to the world and are proud of them because that kind of gives them, like, a rise and it makes them feel better about their failures if they can get a laugh out of them or get attention for them. Overall, though, you begin to see shame wrap itself kind of like a shawl around it. The people that you know, and honestly, I think, sadly, Can you go to the next slide, Lauren? Too many Christians fall into the same category. I think in counseling, I get to work with people who have been such good friends with shame and such good friends with not having a clear conscience and such good friends with trying to fix their own conscience, trying to cleanse their own conscience for so long that they don't remember and know how Jesus intersects at this point of their lives to give them a clean conscience, to give them a clear conscience. And so we see people all the time like go into the little closet of their mind, right? And it's like, we wear shame. And so it's very hard to get away of. Once you're like used to wearing it, it's very hard to like not wear it around. Whether that's in your demeanor, whether that's in your attitude, whether that's in the bitterness in your heart, whether that's in all sorts of different things. And so people peruse their closet On a daily basis, choosing what they want to be seen by other people and choosing what they want to try to hide. They wear their guilt, or they hide it, like I said, or they try to fix it, or they shove it around. Sometimes people even try to add like little patches and try to mend that, but it doesn't ever hold. Israel was given an entire system that was a temporary fix for their shame and their guilt. An entire closet of clothes that they had to wear around Showing everyone when they came up to that table, like, this is my guilt and this is my shame, and everyone had to see it. Um, Their conscience could not be cleansed. So no matter how many sacrifices they offered, they were still trying to fix them and trying to hold on to their failures. And then Jesus steps in and he offers us no condemnation, and he gives us a new conscience, and he tells us that we're actually like a new creation. That once and for all that we have been cleansed and that we have been made right with him. And we don't have to carry around that shame and we don't have to wallow. We don't have to look at it all the time and throw it all over ourselves so that people know it. And I love on this part that he says, so as to serve the living God. Like the whole point of me cleansing your conscience is so that you can bring more glory back to God and that you can press on towards love. And so as we close, I'm going to read a little something, and I would like for you guys just to take a minute to listen. This is just something as I personally reflected on what this experience was like that I wrote out. But I want you to kind of take away and in your small group time discuss what it is like for your conscience to be cleansed. Does your conscience reflect that? Do the people around you in your life, do they see that your conscience is cleansed? Or do they see that you kind of carry and you wear a little bit of the shame and guilt? So if you'll just close your eyes with me as I read this, I want you to think about what it is to draw near. At one time you had to stay out, but now you get to draw near. Drawing near to the throne room of God and to the Holy of Holies, A place of mystery, opportunity, and fear. At one time, only he could come in there. He had to perform, he had to be perfect, and then he had to get out. When is the last time that you consciously, experientially entered into the throne room and into the Holy of Holies where you saw Jesus sitting at the right hand of God? Do you take advantage of the fact that the veil is torn? you move through the courtyard eager and expectant and filled with holy fear of what you'll find when you get to the holy of holies just heard, just having heard the giant rib imagine pushing aside the royal thick veil for the first time and beholding the very presence of God made manifest residing on the mercy seat now having been made a throne of grace what do you feel how did you get here you see Jesus has provided a way A way with his very flesh, torn. A sacrifice of his very blood to cover my sins, not only now to cover, but now to remove. A way to enter into the magnificent presence that sees into my heart and my soul and loves me all the same. This is a new way. I, as a woman, was once outside the tabernacle And I was once stuck, trying to cleanse my conscience again and again and again, 300,000 lambs, trying by my good works, holding on to my guilt, trying to cleanse it, showing my righteousness to people around me. But God. Now it's clean and enlightened and has no condemnation. I've entered into this presence that assures me and gives me joy. It fills me. It sings over me. It is before me and holds all things together. I come here not to talk, not to give my own opinions or state my case, but to know his heart and to receive mercy and walk away changed and eager to return. To stop the hiding, stop the doling, stop the fixing, and stop the forgetting. To present my life as a <coughs> sacrifice, acceptable as a sweet aroma, as incense. That my life would be as incense, sweetly smelled by the people around me. Declaring God, you are my God and embracing the utter beauty of my intimacy with you. For you are appearing, you have appeared, and you will appear. And my soul all the time has felt its worth. Cherishing the tattered and fraying fabric that stands now in two. I return to my daily life and I hold fast I will consider for once and for all he has poured out and now we wait for his return. Dear Holy Father, I just praise you um, that we once were as scarlet and now we're white as snow. That Lord, when we imagine a tabernacle and we think about the blood and we think about all these things around us, Lord, we know that now that you have made a way to your presence uh, that should not be taken lightly, but should be seen and should be celebrated, Lord, and cherished. So, Lord, we praise you and we thank you for the fact that you love us and that you sent your Son to provide a way to be the gate to allow us to enter and come to you, Lord, that we can know that our sins are forgiven, Lord, and that this shame and that this heavy conscience or unclean conscience, Lord, that, that has no place for us as believers, Lord, but that you enter in and that you have given us a clean conscience. I pray as we move to small groups, Lord, I pray that you would continue to allow our hearts to understand how this applies to us. May we walk away from this and worshiping you and seeing you in these daily moments in our worship to you, Lord. We pray this and we thank you in your precious name. Amen.